Eat. Sleep. Links. Repeat. Boom, let's party! your brain big enough? Welcome. This is the Atari Lynx Handicast. This is interview episode 01, with special guests, Chuck Somerville, and LX Rudis. And here is your moderator for this evening, Mark Little. It is my great pleasure to welcome to the Atari Lynx Handicast two of the pioneering <laughs> luminaries, not only in the history of the Atari Lynx console, but in the history of video gaming. And I'm speaking, of course, of none other than Chuck Somerville, developer and programmer of such classic Lynx games as Blue Lightning, Electrocop, California Games, and Chips Challenge, but also joining us is one of one whose fantastic music and sound effects are known and loved by countless Atari Lynx fans, LX Rudis, musician and sound engineer extraordinaire. And I'd like to welcome you both to the Atari Lynx Handicast. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, thanks for inviting me to be on the, on the podcast. Um, I would like to uh, give proper credit where credit's due <laughs> on... Um, Electricop and Blue Lightning, I played a very, very minor role. I, I wrote some functions that were used. Those games, Blue Lightning, amazing job by Steve Landrum, and Electricop, really great work by Greg Omi, who is actually a le legend in his own right. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm, of course, very familiar with those names. and um, But don't sell yourself short. Because <laughs> those are great games. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, LX, you did some of the music, if not all of the music, on those with uh, Bob Vieria. Is that correct? Yeah, Bob um, <clears throat> did a lot of the melodic stuff. And I found myself doing a lot more things related to um, uh, implementing sounds and uh, making the arrangement sound a little bit more interesting. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but I, I did, I did get my digs in on some of the, uh, some of the music. Right. So. Right. And, uh, your list of links games from what I can see just on Moby games is pretty long. I counted 13 games at least, uh, just on the links that you worked on either the sound or the music or both. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, 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 it was, it was a cool system to work on. I really enjoy, I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Uh, I do. Either of you guys still have a Lynx? Oh, <laughs> I do. I have a few actually. I've got two or three. Okay, so that's uh, that's some that's a two, that's a mark mark two, and yes, you got a mark one there, and I've got a mark two here. Uh, mine actually is got the McWill screen. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Have you heard of that? Yeah, I looked no. at it on your blog. Uh, there's a gentleman in Germany who uh, has come up with a way to easily somewhat... Oh, there you go. There's the game. <laughs> well done, well done. <laughs> yeah, I've got mine here too, but uh, I'm waiting. I'm actually got another one on the way that doesn't have the band on the side, so it was a later release, I think. So uh -huh. I'm waiting for that. But uh, the McWill gentleman in Germany uh, has come up with a mod for either the links, the one or the two, that will have a new LCD screen on it, and it works beautifully. It's like night and day. You can also add a, a VGA output on it if you nice. so desire. So anyway, let's get talking a little bit about uh, Chip's Challenge. That's sort of my, my focus right now because I'm about to put out an episode of the podcast about the game. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to start with you, Chuck. Uh, obviously, that's um, your masterpiece, and um, yeah. <laughs> or one of them, we'll say. And it's the game I'm best known for. <laughs> right, right. Even though you know, I think California Games is pretty well known as well. But my understanding is, at least on the links, you, 
you didn't come up with the original design. Is that correct? Um, the original version of California Games was written for the Commodore 64. The Lynx right. version was actually a port. Mm-hmm. And I worked on the original uh, Commodore 64 version along with some other programmers. It was a big team effort. And then it was um, we hired some other programmers to do a Lynx, I would have to say, interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, some of the events are better and maybe and other events are maybe a little worse. I know a couple of the events were dropped from the original Commodore 64 version. Hmm. Okay. But Chip's Challenge was one that you came up with early on uh, at your time at Epix. Is that correct? Yes. Chip's Challenge was originally done for the Lynx. Um, it was because the project that I had originally started on the Lynx was, um, was canceled uh, due to lack of my being able to actually do it. <laughs> um, but I, we had some more time before the Lynx was, you know, we had to have all the carts ready we had time before the cars had to be ready to go off the manufacturer. And uh-huh. uh, so I pitched this idea. Um, it was actually a, a great chance for me because up to that point, for the most part, everything I had written for Epics was not my own design. It was, you know, marketing department wants this or we think that'll sell. So but Shift Challenge, um, I, I, I basically was, uh, you know, free to do whatever I wanted to. And I said, hey, let me do this game. And I designed it, and um, that's how it happened. So it was actually one of the first games at Epics I did that actually came from the heart. Right. Now, did you come up with a name? Yes. In fact, I did come up with a name. I I think we were sitting in a a conference meeting, and this um, idea of um, chips challenge being kind of the double meaning of the circuit chips that I – I, I wanted to put certain chips in the game for you to collect, and then I, the name of the guy, Chips. I wanted to have it be kind of confusing between what the <laughs> chips were. Uh, but uh, from what I understand, uh, the storyline that was in the manual and on the back of the box is something you didn't necessarily come up with with uh, Melinda. No, I did not write that. I think I might have come up with Melinda's name, but, okay. you know, this is like... <laughs> 25, 30 years ago. I'm not sure if I came up with her name or not. <laughs> Melinda the Mental Marble is just kind of a great name. Yeah, it is. That's a great name. Uh, LX, if I can ask you, uh, how much of the music on the on Chips Challenge did you do? Did you do just the level levels that you were working on? Or do you remember? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I did, um, I don't know, I think about three or four of the level pieces. Mm-hmm. Um May have been a fifth one. Uh, we, uh, you know, as Chuck said, the game came along kind of late in the dev cycle, right? And um, so we did took some rather odd uh, uh, shots of trying to provide background music. So, uh, as I explained to you earlier, I, I it gave me an opportunity to experiment with things like uh, stuff that would deliberately be composed of little tiny bits that would go in and out of phase. And mm. uh, I, I actually even installed a. Um, a transcription of a Lithuanian folk song that I found sheet music for from like the ah. on there. But uh, it, it, Chip's Challenge was cool because it just gave us this opportunity uh, to dump a whole bunch of just wildly different stuff in. And, uh, you know, each level is like literally a different world. Um, right. So it, it, it was it was just fun from kind of a, a really kind of just loose, like, let's throw this in here and see if this works kind of a thing. <laughs> now, did the 10-week uh, turnaround kind of scare you? Um, well, I, I, you know, 10 weeks is an amazing amount of time, uh, you know, to do something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm famous for saying that it was a 10-week project. <clears throat> I, I may have had like a, a one-week head start on that. Um, I'm mm-hmm. not sure the timing on it, but I did do a simple um, prototype of it on the Apple II in low-res graphics just to kind of prevent the present the idea of the mechanics of it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the amazing thing, what happened with that, why that actually worked is since it was so late in the development cycle, there were a whole bunch of programmers that were coming off of other Lynx projects that their, their product was just in test at that point. So I had like an army of people helping me develop content as well as the testers who were finishing up, they were also available for me as like this army of about 10 testers. So if, if we had not had, if I had not had all that help of this 
huge number of people backing me up because they were coming free. There's no way we could have done that in 10 weeks. Yeah, I don't see, even with that many people, how you did do it in 10 weeks and came out with such a polished game, to be quite honest, because I know that was tough. And, um, you know, as you went through the development of it, I kind of, I've always wondered how the music is uh, incorporated into the game. Is, Is it that the game is more or less designed completely from the beginning or... There he goes. <laughs> you got it going. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so, so what kind of uh, yeah, what kind of uh, interaction was there between you two uh, to to get a certain level or the whole game uh, completed? As as I recall, the way that worked. I'm sorry, Alex uh, or Alex. So, as I understand, as I remember the way that worked, I was given uh, a library of tunes. Um, I don't know, maybe about fifteen or so. And one was made specifically for the title screen, and there might have been one that was made specifically for the menu screen. And right. then another was done for the, the final screen, the EEPROM. And the rest of them were, were just a bunch of pieces of random music. And I basically put them in a loop and assigned them like, you know, a modulo 13 or something like that. So they just played in the order and then started again after however many levels they repeated. So I didn't actually match songs to levels because I thought this song played well with that level. Oh, okay. How many different songs were they? I thought super cool about the project. Uh, Again, I mean, we're moving so fast that (laughs) we're just trying to get something out. And um, even though I couldn't do anything like the generative music or uh, adaptive music that I did in uh, a couple of the Cal Games levels... um, I did know that uh, Chuck had basically used an algorithm in order to actually uh, array the level music. And uh, that was part of the fun for me, Was because part of my gig then, obviously, was that I spent part of my time in the test lab uh, playing these builds of Chip's Challenge. And it was always exciting for me to go in there, because I wouldn't know. Uh, sometimes I, I would see the little D-paint sketches before they became levels, because Chuck was just sitting right across from me. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times I didn't. And so uh, some of my most fun times would be like, you know, literally like 9, 10 o'clock at night, uh, like, oh, let's see what the latest build's like. And <laughs> when I was going in the course to see, like, what kind of wild juxtapositions there were. And some of them were just, um, you know, like, better than be- better than if they'd been chosen by people, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. So, yeah, synergetic. Uh, the whole the whole project felt like that to me. Wow. Wow. Have, have either of you had that kind of synergy feelings since then, since in, on doing any of your projects since then? You know, not no, not necessarily no, no, together, but for the last forty years, just this <laughs> long death march with kind of different inmates alongside of me. Um, occasionally, I'll reach out to Chuck, you know, kind of wailing in the darkness, and he'll kind of hand me some sort of thing that'll kind of keep me going for a few more years. But it's been terrible. Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, okay. I do want to actually uh, talk about the sound effects for just a moment, if, if I can. So. Uh, Alex, I believe you designed all the sound effects for the game. Is that right? I, I believe so. Uh, you know, Bob knew how to do it, but he was usually uh, kind of focusing on just trying to do Bob ditties because that was oh. what he's really <laughs> so great at. This, I just want to say that the sound effects that you generated for the game, you know, in, in retrospect, are just perfect. I mean, I, I love the sounds of them, and, you know, particularly the iconic sound of the teleport. It's just oh, yeah. the sounds just amazing. <laughs> well, yes, actually, I think that I, I found the bit combinations gave me something similar to a shepherd function generator. I, I, yeah, no, I, 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 Mark, you don't. This this sound thing was the most alien thing I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, I remember going to Dave Needle at one point, and he uh-huh. just sort of laughed at me and told me, "Well, we did this deliberately because I hate sound." Um, yes, and Dave Needle <laughs> did not like sound. Yeah. He hated music specifically. He hated music because I, I yeah, Dave Needle, God rest his soul, uh, yeah. you know, because he's he's now passed. Right. But he he loathed music in general because whenever he heard music, it broke his concentration. So he oh. he would not want. So he did. He made things difficult in the sound chip because he didn't care at all about it. So basically, it was, it's almost like a, a an Atari twenty six hundred sound generation thing it was really really primitive mm-hmm. so in order to get interesting sounds and, and alex can speak to this 
you had to be loading new data into those registers continuously. Oh, wow. Now, this is all in 6502, right? Uh, yeah. The, the assembly, yeah. Um, Sound generator was actually its own hardware, so basically it was just sort of sending instructions out to it to do things. And what it was was four channels of... Uh, of 12-bit shift register, basically. So if I flipped uh, bit zero, uh, I'd get a, a narrow pulse width. Um, if I started flipping other bits, if I knew which ones to flip, I could yeah. get a richer square wave. But <clears throat> majority of the combinations would just suddenly uh, create waveforms that would have a center frequency that might actually be sub-audio at, at that clock oh, rate. Wow. And so what I had to do is I'd have to go in, I'd kind of have to Sometimes I would actually kind of figure out arrays that would then let me know which bits to experiment with. And then sometimes I would just, just give up and just flip bits <laughs> and then listen to the results. And uh, I'd rigged up a system where Erg Gaudi had showed me how I could actually assemble a voice in because we're only our sound effects pr uh, editor only let us listen to voice zero, as I recall. So what I would do is I would create a voice, then compile that into the tool as voice one. So every time I hit the launch button to preview voice zero it would also uh play back this script i'd already created for voice uh, for for voice one and then by doing that i would be able to kind of a b things um so it, it was really uh you know it, it it's it's as chuck said it's very crude and yet in its own way it's super complex because uh, um it was kind of created its own kind of weird sound world and um uh, you, you could get, you know, better sounds than the NES out of it, but you had to go hunting for them. Um, and, uh, you know, actually, Chuck, my favorite sound effect was after somebody had developed South Pole, which was all ice with a couple of curves in it, yeah. basically. And Scott, about Nelson, Scott Nelson developed that level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and you, you're just out on the ice, like, and, and uh, so I remember, <laughs> like, Let's see, can I like come up with some sort of looping code? And then, and then I finally just sort of brute forced it and basically composed out something that was designed to like not play back, not loop for something like 30 seconds or something like oh. that. And then um, on top of that, I kind of went in and agonized and kind of turning little sections of it upside down so it would sound even more random. Um, but uh, yeah, that would actually, uh, Chuck, that's, uh, I go into South Pole occasionally so I can kind of listen to that one sound effect, you know. <laughs> Around. That's I just amazing. That was God's only level. It's that was God's only level. Oh, really? So, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Chuck, done, Chuck, you you told me. I remember when you showed me what you were first coming up with on the Apple II, and my recollection was it was a a fixed viewport, so it was like no world to scroll around on. You had very simple graphics, but you did actually have your player character able to do things like use the teleporters and stuff. So you had functional levels going. And I remember you telling me about how you were developing around the primal elements, you know, earth, fire, ice, water. And uh, that was one of the things that really struck me about this is that rather than a whole bunch of like uh, marketing ball draw about how we were trying to do some sort of like rescue the princess thing, you know, here's this, this concept that to my mind was stripped down uh, about as far as you could take it. And then the next level, when suddenly we had this D-Paint file that was locked down to grid mode, so you had the whole world displayed in a section of the D-Paint screen, and then had a little catalog of the uh, maze pieces and um, NPCs that you could drop into the world. And then, most amazingly, just hand the D-Paint file off, because as I recall, your upper left uh, pixels, Chuck, you'd actually loaded in... Um, uh, IDs or, or done something that power yeah. could read those. So, I heard you mention this before in another interview, uh, Chuck. What what yeah. were they like coordinates? Let me, yeah, let me talk about that a little bit. So right. this uh, this method of designing maps like that was developed by John Luke when right. he did the Gauntlet game, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so he found that he could take the bitmap image out of DPaint, DPaint being Deluxe Paint, right. which was an art tool I think produced by Electronic Arts. <clears throat> He found that he could take the bitmaps files that were saved from DPaint and he could decode them and get the pixel data out of it. <clears throat> so we came up with a template that had uh, a rectangle for each tile within the game. It was 32 by 32. Right. And then that was on the left hand on the on the left hand side of the mm -hmm. screen. And then all, there was a strip down the right that had all these like kind of icons, but they were the same tile shape. D-Paint had a grid mode 
that would lock it um, lock it so that when you painted the uh, tile or the the brush, it would lock on like eight pixel or twelve pixel boundaries. <clears throat> so, and you would grab an entire tile with the um, in the menu uh, the palette with your brush, and then take it over and drop it on. And within that, we would use the transparent portion um, to uh, go around the, the mobs um, so that we could see the tile behind it. And then if it was a background tile, it would be completely filled in with no transparency. Mm-hmm. And the background tiles, I believe, the pixels across the top of the artwork were encoded a number, an 8-bit number, which was what tile that was. And then, so you put the tile down, and then those number, those bits would be encoded across the top of the tile. And then you would grab the mob, and its numbers would be encoded across the bottom of the tile. And you drop that on, so then when you get the bitmap back, you could just read the pixels at the top and the bottom of each of the tiles in those positions to generate the data. Ah, so you didn't have to keep reinventing the wheel, basically, every time uh, you wanted to make a new level. Um, right, so we had the tool, I basically just took exactly the same tool that John Luke had used mm-hmm. um, to generate all his levels for Gauntlet. And I use the same tool exactly to create the levels for Chip's Challenge. And the, the nice thing was all the levels were actually saved as bitmaps. That, so you could actually just peruse through the levels by loading them into the editor and looking at them. Mm-hmm. I see. And was Gauntlet also 32 by 32? I can't, can't remember. It was a vertical uh, uh, game. No, I think it was also 32 by 32. Okay. I think it was the positioning of the... Uh, you know the the readout screen for you know what kind of things you have in your inventory that may have made it vertical. So, wow, that's amazing. Now, obviously, Chuck, um, I think it's pretty well known the problems that you had with uh, getting uh, Chips Challenge Two out uh, eventually. <laughs> and but if you want to, uh, yeah, it has been. But you're welcome to uh, touch on it if you'd like. Um, well. I can reiterate on that. Okay. Um, so I would, um, after I'd written Ships Challenge, I would occasionally get contacted by the fan base saying, well, we'd like a sequel. Mm. <clears throat> but I never could do it because I was always working for other game publishers like Electronic. I worked for Electronic Arts and I worked for 3DO. <clears throat> but eventually I left the game industry to go enter the LED, uh, big stuff out of LEDs, which I could talk about later. But at that point, right. I no longer had any conflict of interest with my employer for making a sequel to Chip's Challenge. So um, I contacted the, the people who own the rights at this point, which was uh, Bridgestone Multimedia, and um, that's, that's a whole story in itself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I contacted them and said, I want to do this. The fans want it. What do you think? You know, would you guys support this? And they said, sure, go ahead. So uh, I spent about two years, and I, uh, through emails and talking to the community, I found a group of about 20 um, hardcore Chips Challenge players um, that wanted to be beta testers, mm-hmm. or actually probably alpha testers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, um, so I, I compiled a copy of the game for each one of them that had their name um, encoded in the game. Um, send it out. I did that so that I knew that if it, if it got leaked, I would know where it leaked from. And they all knew that, too. <laughs> uh, and they all signed contracts, too, that they wouldn't release it. And I have to say it's, it's a, 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 a good thing to say about that community, how honest they were, was that nobody ever leaked the game. Yeah. But it was about 20 years later <laughs> that, well, actually, after the two years, two years, I went back to Bridgestone and they said, um, sure. Uh, you give us $200,000 and, uh, we'll let you sell the game. And I'm like, um, uh, that's really not what I had in mind. <laughs> that's and, not how uh, it works, is it? Yeah. Well, they weren't actually game publishers. Right. So they don't really, didn't really understand it. So anyway, uh, so things sat dormant for like about 20 years and every few years I get a contact Somebody would contact me and say, we'd like to put your challenge on the iPhone or something like that. And I said, mm-hmm. great, go contact Bridgestone and see what they say. And then they would always come back and say, yeah, see what your problem is. Uh-huh. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> what happened was, oh, I don't know, 
five to eight years ago. I don't remember how it's been a long time ago. I got contacted by this guy named Barn Cleave mm-hmm. uh, out of London. And he said, I want to put Chips Challenge on the iPhone. And uh, I got venture capital. And I go, like, well, this first person who said he's got venture capital. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I'll go talk to these guys and see what they say. And he comes back and says, yeah, I see the problem. <laughs> he said, how about we do this? Let's make a game that's very much like Chips Challenge. Um, and we'll give it a new name. And then in the description, we can say from the designer of Chips Challenge mm. so that when they do a search for Chips Challenge, they'll find it. Mm. And I thought, well, that's a really cool idea. And then he came up with the, the name Chuck's Challenge. Mm-hmm. And because, like, I didn't want to actually say that. Because <laughs> was it in the back of your mind, though, that that would be a yeah, good name? It was in the back of my mind. <laughs> yeah, of course. And he said, let's call it Chuck's <laughs> Challenge. And then he gave me this little story for how, what the, the storyline would be that this, uh, this alien creature, who's both an alien and he's a game, wants me to. Um, abducts me and wants me to design <laughs> games for him to keep him challenged. Ah, so there's this storyline in Chuck's challenge. I'm sitting on the beach in Hawaii and I get abducted by an alien. And uh, <laughs> then I'm, I'm doomed to design game levels for him. And that's the level. <laughs> so uh, I actually appear in my own game. It's really interesting. That's, that's great. That is great. <laughs> but anyway, so um, Barnes started um, lobbying against uh, lobbying with Bridgestone to release ships challenge too, because of course, you know, he's my business partner now mm-hmm. and he knows about the game. <clears throat> so um, he, after about, after five years of going after it with them, they finally agreed because he said, look, it's been 25 years. Um, nobody's going to care if, for the 50-year anniversary. Why don't we do something for the 25-year <laughs> anniversary of this game? Let us release it. You're not doing anything with this title. Yeah. So finally they agreed, and we gave them a very generous um, uh, profit sharing that I can't talk about. Of course. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so Chips Challenge 2 was eventually released. And right. again, I have to say kudos to the fans because nobody released it um, and nobody got to see it except those few people before it was released. Wow. And it was in hiding for 20 years, you think? Yeah, about 20 years. Wow. Well, no, probably about, yeah, 15. I mean, there was a bit of, it was, it was, yeah, probably 20 years. Yeah, I would say probably about 20 years because it was probably about five years after Chips Challenge came out that I finished Shift Challenge 2. Mm-hmm. So it was basically shelved for about 20 years. Okay, great. From the time it was finished to the time it was released. Okay, I see. Uh, LX, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you about a couple of other games that uh, you've done the music for, and you've done a lot. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite, by the way? What's he got up there? Yeah, the, the Mandelbrot set oh, the ba- Mandelbrot inside Chips Challenge. I yeah. kind of want to ask you about that a little later. That was Steve Lander, by the way. Oh, it was. Okay. That's right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Oh, do you have a favorite uh, game that you worked on when you were working with uh, Lynx Games, LX? Well, that's a good question. Um, One eh. that you remember fondly, maybe, or you just well, liked I'm how the music or the sound came out? Well, I'm here talking to you about this one. Um, I mean, obviously, the one people like to talk about is Clax. Um, oh, God. Yeah. Uh, that's. Uh, it didn't it, although it used the uh, onboard hardware, it used them in a different way. Uh, basically, turning the four voices into four DACs so that we could run eight-bit samples through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, uh, from the implementation and um, uh, creativity standpoint. Uh, the tools were really primitive. I mean, basically, I was writing notes by creating uh, small files in in C and uh, basically. You know, calling out stuff at a pretty granular level, and uh, it, it was fun. It was really challenging, um, but you know, it was just the, the whole experience of actually working <clears throat> with uh, Chuck and uh, and just the rest of these guys. I mean, uh, I didn't know it at the time because I was fresh to the game industry, uh, but I was with a whole team of essentially industry rock stars. Um, and uh, all, all of these people were just absolutely brilliant. And I had this incredible fortune of just being locked into a room with them for about 13 months. Um, working <laughs> this was, on the this was at Epix, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, after Epix, you were still making, you were still doing um, games for the Lynx uh, with Atari, I assume? Yeah, I, I went through uh, kind of an interesting experience and wound up kind of 
holding an office in there, but I wasn't really a full-time employee. It was just they couldn't find anybody to work on audio for the thing. Uh, matter of fact, they tried a few times to try to hire people in out from under me and uh, to, to get me out of there and uh, <clears throat> didn't uh, each time they basically wound up spending money on somebody and then would have them kind of walk away because they just didn't even want to deal with it. Oh. Um, but, uh, you know, I wound up doing a lot of interesting stuff because I, I spent part of my time uh, uh, talking to outside developers on the phone and holding hands and trying to, uh, you know, the, uh, fortunately, the, the, uh, the dev tools were some of the best I've ever encountered. So we didn't have uh, too much real, you know, there was no really crazy excitement like, uh, you know, cryptic, uh, you have to reboot three times and then you know, try this <laughs> and hope for your best. Stuff uh -huh. just worked. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, the Atari time was interesting, but it was different. Uh, the time I was at Epics, um, it was a lot more of, uh, of a creative environment. And uh, But the time I was at Atari, we got stuff out the door, but it was very much like, you know, punch the clock, uh, come in, get the, get, the, get the stuff done. Right. Uh, now, since you uh, both have your links uh, with you, are these links that you've had since back in the day or these replacements? Do you know? Um, this one, I believe, was one that we bought for my mother-in-law, and then when she died, I inherited it. I see. Uh, I do have one of my original linkses. I have one or two of the original Model 1s. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a fun story to tell, though, about one of those original Model 1s. Sure. Uh, that just happened just this year. I think it was this year. It started last year. <clears throat> um, a friend of mine, uh, you may have heard this story. Mm -hmm. um, a, a, a young mother, a young girl who's just starting out a new family. Uh, she's, you know, got a new baby. Uh, she was pregnant at the time. She was like nesting, like getting ready and, and cleaning out. And she found this old Lynx. And she knew that I was into this kind of stuff. And she said, do you want this? And I said, I would be happy to take that Lynx from you. <laughs> so then I decided, I think I can do something really cool with this. So uh, I put it up for auction mm -hmm. and saying that I would autograph the Lynx and a Chips Challenge cartridge and a California Games car cartridge. <clears throat> and that the proceeds would go back to the young mother. Oh. And I was able to sell that links uh, with those signatures for, I think, over $500. I remember that. That was mm, three, four months ago, maybe, I think. Something like that, yeah. And uh, I got to bid on that, but I got outbid. <laughs> but it was for I, a good I, cause, so I didn't mind. Yeah, I think she, she said she put that money into a, like a future college fund. Good. So. That's great. That is a great story. Wow. How about yours, uh, Alex? Is that your original links from 1989? Actually, yeah, all my stuff got stolen from me. Oh, no. But, um, this was uh, one that I purchased at uh, Game Dude in uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> North Hollywood. Okay. And that's a, that's a Model 1, right? Indeed. Yeah. Wow. Which, I don't have a Model 1. It's a great hardware, by the way. I mean, they're really, if you ever, I mean, you, you, did you, is yours a two or a one or, I didn't even ask Mark. Uh, oh, mine. It's a two. I've got two of them actually. Uh, but this is the only one that has the McWill screen mod done to it. Uh, oh, okay. And it's hard to see in the screen, but uh, it's just a a very bright and clear screen. There's no, there's no um, scan lines or anything. It's really, yeah. really nice. Oh. But uh, yeah, I have, I have uh, two of them. I have well, these these were really expensive to build. Um, <clears throat> like one thing I know is that uh, they had to underneath this gray paint. Uh, they're actually chromed uh, so that they mm. could be shielded. But that was like I think that cost something like ten or fifteen bucks per unit wow. uh, to that one step. So these things were definitely lost leaders. Uh, they also have other features like the power supply is actually on its own discrete board on them. So uh, mm -hmm. for repairing it, as long as we can get through whole components and things, I mean it's. Um, these are these are pretty pretty cool little devices, uh, you know. The, the twos are not bad either, but these are just uh, it's just it's just. I'll never forget like when I first got brought into this cult. I was told that this thing was going to ship for ninety nine bucks, and at that time, a, a Casio television set with an LCD screen was two hundred thirty nine bucks. You know, right, right. And, and so I was like, wow, you guys are going to sell like. You're going to give the consumers a combination of a Commodore 64 and an Amiga, and it's going to be battery powered, and it's going to have a screen on it. You're going to offer that for a hundred bucks, huh? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they did. You know, <laughs> I, 
but but you know, I mean, that's how the industry does this sort of thing. You know, sometimes the hardware platform goes out, and really the idea is that uh, they got to do sell through by selling the product, the software product that runs on it. You right. Know? So they'll sell these things right. at a loss. Are either of you LSU. still in the uh, uh, still kind of keeping up with the retro community know. right now? Uh, either online. Uh, I'm or... on the Facebook group. I'm on the Facebook group, but mostly I lurk and wait for people to mention me so that I can answer. <laughs> <laughs> I see. How about you, Alex? Well, I, actually, I, I like Chuck's response. Um, <clears throat> I no, I, I you know, there's a, a few other like curmudgeonly game types, and so I um, I don't know. It's just it's uh, I, I um, part of my day gig these days is I actually teach adults who are on the um, uh, autism spectrum. Uh, how to get and hold jobs in tech. And um, actually, if I can give me one second, I'll go sure. grab. Sure. Okay. <laughs> oh, while, while he's gone. Sure. Um, oh, no, and now I forgot what I was going to say. It's all right. <laughs> oh, yeah, I wanted to ask. Actually, I wanted to ask him if he remembered the original um, four by four sheet of plywood that the links was on. Oh God! Uh, well, I remember you. You remember that they wouldn't give. Uh, I was the last one. Uh, the, I had my own little slab that was um, just the component that did audio, and that uh, uh, then that was like about a foot by two feet long with all this wire wrap on it. Uh -huh. and, and it was like, yeah, it, I, I was the very last one to actually get hardware when the thing finally hit silicon. So that was part of my mystification when I was doing this. Is that. I was being told that this thing was going to cost $100, and yet, to my left, I'm looking at a big plastic. I was looking at a slab of plywood. <laughs> where the original actually, one was, was on a, a four-foot by four-foot sheet of plywood it was that, awesome. that they originally prototyped it on. And that was what we were actually doing development work on. I think there were two of them. Was um, it just two? I thought there were more. Uh, one or two. I remember that I remember that after it was all done, they, they stripped out all, all, all the hardware off of it. And I actually took the four by four sheet of plywood home, and I used it to repair the floor in my bathroom. <laughs> oh my god! Oh. Is it still there? <laughs> uh, it's somewhere in Newark. I don't know. <laughs> that is so that's, funny. Wow. That's sort of like legend, and and sort of, I mean, okay, so I can see in the future some enthusiasts locating that piece yeah. of plywood, <laughs> unearthing it. And then bring it back and locating period accurate AUGAT sockets and chips and reproducing the wire wrap based on some little blurry photographs. Yeah, if they can do it in Alamogordo, why can't they do it in Chuck's bathroom? Why not? Yeah, dig it up. Yeah, I do stuff on these these days. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Nice. That yeah, this nice. little Arduino. This is actually kind of obsolete. An Arduino Explora that's got their uh, oh, yeah. screen add-on on it. Mm -hmm. It just comes like this. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny. I, there's a, an Atari Times interview with me out there where I joke about the future when I would be paid to do the crappiest video games in history. And uh, <laughs> lo and behold, as I was like on some graph paper a few weeks ago, working out a run cycle on a five by seven bitmap character so I could show how you could uh, do an animation on um, on a standard LCD character display, I realized that I'd actually uh, wound up doing exactly what I said I was going to do. <laughs> So, it all circles uh, around, doesn't it? That machine, yeah. It's, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The game it runs on this is absolutely astonishing. There's like a guy that doesn't look like a guy, and he kind of crouches down or he, he gets up, and uh, maybe a pixel hits him or it doesn't. Um, it's it's something else. Wow. Cool. I have about three of those. <laughs> that, that little display board. Oh, yeah. Jeez. This is uh, Hitachi, I think. It's, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. This is actually one of the this whole thing is going on with Raspberry Pis and um, Arduinos. I think is one of the coolest things ever. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these these machines are fast enough. They're approachable enough. They, you know, <laughs> um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's got. Yeah, one. right. There's a Raspberry Pi. Yes. There's an Arduino TC 3.5. Yes. Yes. I, oh, yes, they, I that's see. a new Arduino, isn't it? Check that out. Well, this is made by like. PC Junior or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there's the processor part. It's pretty damn powerful, and it's got a micro SD built into the board. It's a uh, got a 40 pin, um, uh -huh. you know, socket thing there, and the USB. So this is like about 25 bucks, uh, yeah. but it is smoking powerful. 
it, it, it's so cool. I, I like Jesus devolving into an Arduino. <laughs> That's sugar. all right. That's all right. But like, you know, I, I just, uh, I got one. This is obsolete too, but this is an Adafruit 1.8. That's a 2.8 screen. That's got a little built in joy pad. And you know, the, uh, I've got an SD port on this as well. And you know, man, you know, you, you can, you can make your own little retro game. Well, that's what I was just explaining. I do and uh, mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. force strangers to do it. Um, uh, make little simple things that run around and it teaches you a whole bunch about, well, basically, it teaches you a lot about how the modern world works. Yeah. Is really what it does. Yeah. Yes. Now, what are you now, doing what, with music now, Alex? I know you're with uh, EdgeNote Records. Is that right? Uh, well, you know, these are it's a pretty loose consortium out there. When um, I'm working on my own, I tend to uh, do pretty uh, experimental stuff. Yeah. Uh, I tend to focus on using. Um, cobbled together hardware or, mm-hmm. or strange old archaic things. And, uh, uh, but, but I, you know, I, I stay active. I do a, um, I play live once a week these days. That's great. Um, part of what I'm doing with the Arduinos is there's, uh, an odd little hybrid project that a friend of mine, Darwin gross came up with that, uh, basically turns Arduinos into virtual analog synthesizer modules, uh, that can be patched together with patch cords. And uh, so I've been uh, kind of working in the background on a project involving that. And, um, you know, just basically stay active, you know, and, and uh, continue to have fun. That's great. Quirky stuff. <laughs> uh, and Chuck, uh, obviously you're doing, you're with Kaibo, right? Uh, Kibo. 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 Works. I'm so Actually, sorry. I said it wrong. Kibo, Kibo works. Yeah. So, as I said, you know, 20 some odd years ago, I left the game industry to make stuff out of LEDs with uh, one of my best friends, Kevin Furry. Mm-hmm. He was also um, worked on the California games for the Color of 64. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Kevin and I started this business making stuff out of LEDs, and we continue to make stuff out of the LEDs. We've been able to keep that business going, although this is the second iteration of our company. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the first one was called LED Effects, mm-hmm. and we started out making uh, making jackpot progressive signs for Indian casinos. And then we uh, did some uh, slot machine work. Um, then we moved on into making messaging signs and stuff, and then doing custom artwork pieces. And eventually, we got the attention of Philips Lighting, and they had us build the lighting modules for the Times Square Ball. Right. <clears throat> wow. That's a big so gig. Built, <laughs> yeah, that's a big gig. Uh, so we built the Times Square Ball for the 2007-2008 um, chain uh, year, and then two years later they had us redo it uh, twice the diameter for the 2009-2010, and that ball has been on display ever since. Uh, we're in negotiations to do it a third time. I uh, don't know if that will go through or not. Is that to be a bit uh, even bigger than that one? Then they uh, no they um, the first time they wanted the, the first time we did they wanted it to be bigger and slightly more uh, resolution because they wanted and they wanted it to be more weather resistant because yeah. they wanted it to be on display twenty four seven so you can see it any night on in Times Square uh-huh. uh, but this time we want to uh, increase the resolution and hopefully if we can sell the idea bring in um, some social networking aspects into it. And I won't get, go into all the detail behind that at this point. <clears throat> but so we did that. Um, we also um, do a lot of um, artwork, art, like for public art pieces. And uh-huh. one of our uh, major um, artists that we work with is an artist named Jenny Holzer. And she's well known for doing artworks, which are like basically like, like messaging signs. Uh-huh. And there was a, a story about and one of Dan Brandt. Dan Brown's latest books, he talked about one of her pieces um, in Europe, and he actually describes the artwork and says it's a Jenny Holzer. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. We built that, and it's in Dan Brown's book. <laughs> I think the book and, is Origin, if I'm not mistaken. I uh, think that's his be. latest, but uh, wow, that's and, amazing. Uh, so we built that, and we're just getting ready, I guess this Saturday, to unveil her latest piece in, in San Francisco at the new Transbay uh, bus terminal. Um, there's a piece you can go see that. Uh, it's a big U-shaped piece uh, that's up on the glass windows between the 
grand hall and the bus deck. Wow. Wow, that's great. So you've obviously been keeping busy, too. Yeah, I was actually pretty excited to hear that my friend and also fellow Epic's um, uh, reject, uh, no, <laughs> reject. Uh, is that what you said? Not reject. Uh, <laughs> fellow Epic's employee Arthur Koch. Oh yeah, uh, artist. Art. Yeah, art. Art Koch. He is actually also um, doing. He's been doing uh, murals lately, and he hmm. has a mural also at the Trans Bay um, oh. terminal that is going to be. I guess he just finished it. So his art piece is right there in the same place with the one that I just finished. So I'm pretty excited about that. That is neat. Wow. That's just great. Uh, let's see. Going back to the um, Chips Challenge, I understand that um, the you had mentioned in one of your interviews, Chuck, that the new Mini 64 uh, was in talks with you about getting either Chips Challenge or Chips Challenge 2 onto uh, a future iteration of that uh, machine. Have you, have you heard anything more? since that interview uh, i i don't know much about that if it's anything it would only be of course the commodore 64 version of chips challenge right which right. I, I will say is a subpar version right uh, <laughs> the links version is still the best in my opinion but yeah. uh chips challenge 2 is a good close second <laughs> mm. yeah um but yeah the commodore 64 version of course has limited number of sprites and limited graphics capabilities but that would be the one they would put on. And I do believe that um, my partner, Barn Cleave, who worked with me on Chuck's Challenge and the release of Chip's Challenge 2, actually has been um, talking with the people on the Mini 64 project. He actually knows them. So uh, I think he may have a handle on that. Okay, great. Last question for both of you. Uh, do you have anything you would like to say to the Retro Links community right now that... Um, you know, words of wisdom, uh, questions about insanity, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, either one of you. Uh, I'll say thanks for keeping the keeping the history alive. Um, <laughs> the stuff is still fun, even though it's old, and I'm really glad you guys recognize that. Okay. Thank you, Chuck. And how about you, Alex? I'd say the same thing. Um, you know, I mean, I uh, when I first encountered this and... Um, you know, uh, found myself working on this machine. I mean, I was still sort of thinking I was heading other places. And uh, hmm. it's been rather interesting to see how uh, this is still something which, well, as you did tonight, you know, when people reach out, I mean, it's pretty gratifying to, to do something and discover that it actually is still giving somebody fun decades later. I mean, you can't aspire to much more than that. Yeah, I would agree with you on, on all of that. Of course, we love the work that you put into these games uh, 30, 25 years ago and that you're still supportive now, if I can speak on behalf of the, the community right now. So, gentlemen, I really appreciate the time that you spent with me tonight. Um, it's just a thrill for me uh, to even be able to talk to you guys. And, you know, uh, I will let you know, of course, when I get this uh, episode out so that you can... Uh, take a listen or take a look if uh, if you want me to put it on uh, YouTube. I can do that. It's it's totally up to you. But uh, um, you know, I, I just want to thank you so much for spending the time with me tonight and talking to the community. Oh, you're welcome. All Thanks right. for having me, gentlemen. Thank you. Have a good evening, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. are in order for the free music archive which allows for the song 8-bit core by Tagirigus to be used as the opening and closing theme music for the Atari Lynx Handicast under the Creative Commons license. I would also like to thank Ferg of the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, Shinto of the Atari Jaguar Game by Game podcast, and Zerbi of the many Zerbinator Land podcasts including the excellent Please Stand By podcast. 
the help and inspiration that Ferg, Shinto, and Zerbi have provided in my brief podcasting experience are invaluable to me, and I really appreciate it. Finally, I would also like to give my heartfelt thanks to my beautiful wife, Lizzie. She has put up with me and with this strange podcasting thing with the patience of a saint, and I could never fully repay her, but I will definitely try. That's nudge, snap, snap, grin, grin, wink, wink, sign them all. The Atari Lynx Handicast is a proud member of the Throwback Network. You can listen to all of the great retro-themed podcasts on the network, including this one, by visiting throwbacknetwork.net. Episodes of the Atari Lynx Handicast can be found on Apple Podcasts. Please take time to leave a review of the Atari Lynx Handicast on Apple Podcasts so that other interested listeners can easily find the Handicast. You can also find the Atari Lynx Handicast on Stitcher, on Google Play Music, and on TuneIn. While you're at it, be sure to check out the Atari Lynx Handicast website at atarilynxhandicast.net. All of the episodes can be found there, including show notes and a list of upcoming episodes. And you can visit the Atari Lynx Handicast blog page at atarilynxhandicast.blogspot.com. Also, you can subscribe to the Atari Lynx Handicast on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash Atari Lynx Handicast. And you can follow the Atari Lynx Handicast on Twitter. Just search on Twitter for Lynx Handicast. Finally, you can send Mark Little an email and let him know what you think about any episode of the Atari Lynx Handicast. You can also provide your own feedback about any Atari Lynx games. And you can even suggest future topics or possible interview subjects for future episodes. Or you can just simply say, hi. Just write to him at, mark, at, atarilynxhandicast.net. Thank you, for listening to this episode, of the Atari Lynx Handicast. This is Montague Habersham, wishing you a good evening. The Atari Lynx Handicast is made possible by a grant from the Telesearch Group and by the generous support of listeners like you. Thank you.